All right, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And let me tell you, uh, this one was really difficult. Uh, This is one of the harder chapters in the Bible, and here I am trying to preach it. I'm going to do the best I can to give you my understanding, and we're going to look at it together. I'm going to read verses 20 through 40, so if you would open your Bible or turn on your Bible and go along with me here. Most of the time, I guess all the time, I will read out of the English Standard Version. Uh, I find it to be very accurate and very readable. Um, there are times when I would prefer a different word, but I'll probably just say, oh, I'd, you know, maybe we should use that word there and I won't switch on you. So I'll use the ESV. Starting in verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, Will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let, him, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says." If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized." So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray. Lord, um, I spent a lot of hours looking at this this week, and I have prayed for you to tell me what's going on here. And Lord, uh, I continue to do that, and I pray that you will help us all to understand this passage. Uh, Lord, it was so tempting for me to say, huh, well, we covered some of 14, let's go to 15. But Lord, I don't want to do that because I want us to look at, at some passages of Scripture that are very often taken out of context 
and applied. And so, Lord, we want to, uh, to the very best of my ability with your help, look at this in context and see what it is that you would have us to learn from Paul's message to these Corinthians. So, Father, guide us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, the first thing I would like for us to see is that prophecy is better than tongues. We are to worship together with a clear message. And it's a clear message for the saints. You know, verse 3 of this chapter says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for upbuilding, which maybe should be edification, and encouragement and consolation. All right, so we need to be clear so that we can edify, encourage, and console the saints in here. But it also has to be a clear message for the lost. If all prophesy, verse 24 says, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. So when a, when a saint comes in here, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, they need to be built up. When someone who is not yet saved comes in here, they need to be understanding the clear message of the gospel and the clear need for repentance. Paul thinks that prophecy is better than tongues. Now let me ask you if you agree. First of all, what does prophecy mean? Prophecy means if you take the two parts of the word, it means to speak before. Okay, to speak before. Now, does it mean to tell the future? Well, it can, certainly. There were prophets in the Old Testament that would talk about things that were hundreds of years in the future. And God said, hey, if my prophet says something, you can tell if he's my prophet. Because if he's my prophet, he'll be 100% right 100% of the time. And if if he fails in his prophecy, you will know that I did not send that prophet. So yes, prophecy is sometimes about the future. But it can also mean and does also mean to stand before people and speak the truth of the word of God and that is what we do here every Sunday morning if prophecy is indeed better than tongues then why are charismatic churches growing so much faster than we are I do not believe that what is going on in the charismatic movement today is even the genuine gift of tongues I think rather that it is an ecstatic babbling that has always been commonplace in pagan religion. It has always been for centuries. Before Christ, it was a factor that was common in pagan worship, was this ecstatic babbling. They would work themselves into a trance and they would start talking nonsense and they thought they had elevated themselves to the plane of of their deity, and they were communing with their deity. So this is a really old practice that I believe has substituted for the gift of tongues in the New Testament that is currently being practiced today. Now the purpose of my saying that is not to disparage sincere brothers and sisters who are in that movement. Some charismatics believe the gospel, and they are true brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should embrace them as such. According to some sources that I read this week, the charismatic movement is the fastest growing form of religion on the planet. Do you know why? I think it's because they're excited. 
What would it take for you to become excited enough about this church for you to invite somebody new every week? It seems like the clear teaching of Scripture is not nearly exciting enough. So what if I stand up here and babble incoherently? Would that make it exciting enough? What if Brother Jimmy started shouting and running around and fell on the floor with uncontrollable laughter? Would that make it exciting enough? Look with me in verse 20. It says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. We really need to get to the point of maturity where what excites us, what what is worth talking about to our neighbors, what is worth inviting people to, is the presence of God, the worship of God, and the proclamation of His Word. When it gets to the point that that excites us, then we can invite people here with us. Guys, the, the number one unfailing forever since the dawn of time church growth strategy that works is the people in the church get so excited and so happy with what is going on at the church that they tell their friends and neighbors, you got to come with me. And let me tell you what's going to happen at this church. We are not going to going to talk nonsense we're going to talk straight and clear as we can from the word of God what the creator of the universe has to say to us that's kind of a big deal in my book and we're going to worship that creator in in spirit and in truth we're going to be careful of what we sing and we're going to make sure that it is doctrinally sound and then we're going to sing it well and we're going to sing together and hopefully you're going to get excited about the fact that we are meeting with God to offer Him worship. You know, in the Old Testament, there were people who could work in the temple and people who could not work in the temple. Folks, now in the New Testament, we are all priests. We can come to God directly and we can offer our worship to Him. That should excite us. The modern charismatic movement began in uh, what's called the Azuzu Street Revival of 1906. The origination of this revival can be traced back to a series of prayer meetings led by a man named William J. Seymour in a private home in California. Now these prayer meetings outgrew this home and they moved to a larger home in the neighborhood. And uh, while I am going to criticize some of the practices of the charismatic movement, first let me point out, that these people believed in prayer. They got together for a prayer meeting. They outgrew the house. They had to move to another house because they outgrew the one before because more and more people were coming to pray together to seek God. And that is highly commendable. We had nine in prayer meeting again this week. Okay? Nine. On April 9th, 1906, the participants in this prayer meeting felt that they had been visited by the Holy Spirit. The manifestation of this event was speaking and singing in in what they thought were biblical tongues. Now what's meant by tongues here is the spontaneous utterance in an unknown language. From there they grew really, really quickly because they were excited and they had to move to an abandoned church on Azuzu Street in Los Angeles, and that's where that movement gets its name from. What do you think, why do you think they are growing so fast? 
Well, let me tell you, I think it's because they do some stuff way better than we do. They take prayer very seriously. They have passion about God and for God. They worship with joy. And they get so excited about what they're doing that they invite everybody around them to come do it with them. Those things they do better than we do. Now what do we do better? True doctrine, a high view of Scripture, and a very high view for God. What I don't understand though is how in the world a group of people can have true doctrine, a high view of Scripture, and a high view of God and still come in second place in areas like prayer and passion and worship and inviting. It seems like our good doctrine should inspire passion. There's a, there's a disconnect there somewhere, and we have got to get over that. I truly don't understand why we are not above all people who, who, who are careful about our doctrine, don't have the most passion in our praise. Some of us have grown so dispassionate and cold that we need to beg God to bring a revival right here in West Laurel Baptist Church. But you know what? It's a vicious cycle. Because some of us have grown so cold and dispassionate, we're not about to beg God to bring a revival here. Let me ask you something. If you are not providentially hindered this Wednesday, would you join us for prayer meeting? Now, you may think the prayer meeting is boring, and I understand. I've been in some really boring prayer meetings where we just sit around and gossip about every ailment that every person we have ever known has. Okay? I've been there. I've done that. It is boring. Brother Don calls that an organ recital because we revisit everything that is wrong with everybody's organs, and we recite it to one another. Right? (laughs) I understand. You come this Wednesday, and we will join as one and beg God to bring revival to West Laurel Baptist Church. All right, so let me be as clear as I can be. (laughs) I am asking you, if you're not working, I understand some of us are working. My wife, Melissa, is working Wednesday at 1 o'clock, and she cannot be here. Uh, There are people who have uh, doctor's appointments already set up. I understand, okay? But if you don't, would you come this Wednesday at 1 o'clock, and would you join with your brothers and sisters, and would you pray passionately that the Lord will bring revival to West Laurel Baptist Church? I don't expect us to speak in tongues on Wednesday, but I do expect us to pray with our spirits and our minds, and I expect God to hear us. So we've seen in verse 20 through 25 that prophecy the clear speaking of the Word of God is better than tongues. Now let's see that we should come to worship ready for worship. Read with me in verses 26 and following. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church, and to speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. 
If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. How does the Bible say that we are supposed to do church? Is there an order of worship in there somewhere? Uh, Jimmy and I work on the order of worship every week. And it seems like we could just go to the Bible and use that one, right? Well, the only problem is, this is about as close as it gets to an order of worship. And I'm convinced that tongues have ceased. Why do I say that? Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now, people who disagree with me could say that the Bible does not say when tongues will cease. And uh, I agree. That's true. You got me. But consider this. Look through the Bible and see if you can find any prayer of Jesus that was in an unintelligible language. And then after you have failed to find one, look in the rest of the New Testament and see if you can find any prayer that is unintelligible. When you finish that, check the rest of the scriptures and see if you can find one there. The gift of tongues was, in my opinion, a short-lived phenomenon that gave credibility to a new reality. God was not just focused on Israel anymore. This had become a movement for all people everywhere. And God demonstrated this by allowing the apostles and some of their contemporaries to speak to those Gentiles in their own tongue. Now, tongues aren't even mentioned in the Bible after this, and this was one of the very earliest letters to be written. The church fathers had no practice of speaking in tongues, and you would think that the church fathers would have written about this and and done this if it were a continuation of the gift. Imagine with me for a second that Sunday school... Well, I'm sorry. My point is that if there were an order of worship and if this were it, I don't think this would apply to us in this, at this point in church history. But there is a principle here that we can gain a lot from. And that principle is that we should be prepared for worship. Imagine with me what Sunday school would be like if we all read the lesson and the the accompanying Bible studies before we came together. Imagine if during the week we prayed over it, asked for wisdom and enlightenment, and came ready to learn and to bless others with what we had learned. For many of us, that would be a radical departure from our experience in Sunday school. Um, Let me tell you, And I'm not talking about this church because I grew up in different churches, okay? So don't shoot me for this. I'm just telling you my experience. My experience in Sunday school, and it's probably going to be the same for everybody under 50, all right? My experience in Sunday school is we go in there, we open a book, somebody reads from the book what is written in my book, and I read along with them. And then we stop and somebody asks a really awkward question that is so awkward that I wonder, is this supposed to be rhetorical? And we all sit there and look at each other. And then the leader reads the answer in the book. 
That's been my experience in Sunday school. We can do, we can do better than that, can't we? And some of our teachers do better than that, I'm sure. But what would happen if we all came ready and anticipating worship? What if we took our book and we studied the thing like it did matter, like it was God's Word, and then we came together being prepared and being anxious and being expectant for God to communicate with us? I think it would make Sunday school a different thing. What if we came to worship thinking, I get to meet with God. I, who am so unworthy, get to stand in the presence of God and sing worship to Him. How would that change your expectation of coming to church? Would it motivate you to get up and going every week, even when it's raining? Uh, you know, what if you thought that we were going to read from God's Word and have it explained, and, and the Creator of the universe was going to communicate to you a message that He had for you? I think that would change our expectations. Traditionally, we have been much more doctrinally sound than our brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement. And yet they come to worship with anticipation and with joy and with expectation. Something's wrong. Then we get to this lovely passage on more of the role of women. <laughs> so let's, tack, let's tackle that. I don't know. We can't avoid it. I thought about avoiding it. I was like, let's skip this. No, we got to talk about it. All right. In the end of verse 33 going into 34. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones that it has reached? Uh Uh-oh. We got Katie to lead us in prayer last week. I should have read ahead, shouldn't I? No, I'm just kidding. I did read ahead. Okay. And what I found is that this cannot possibly be talking about women praying in the church because he addressed that in chapter 11. In chapter 11 and verse 5, it says, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, meaning her husband, since it is the same as if her head were shaven, and that goes back to adultery and rebellion in the marriage and all that stuff we talked about then. So Paul gives instructions for how women are to pray and prophesy in the gathered assembly of the church. So I think we can all agree that it would be unreasonable for Paul to give instructions on something, tell us exactly how to do it, and then a few chapters later say, don't ever do this, right? Doesn't make sense, does it? So we need to figure out in what context women are to keep silent in the church. So back to verse 31, we are talking about prophesying. We're talking about prophesying in this part of the passage. I want to read to you from the New Bible Commentary, a commentary that I've come to trust that is edited by by one of the people is is, uh, Don Carson, who is, I guess, the most well-respected... conservative evangelical thinker alive today. Here's what it says. Three points need to be noted in seeking to understand this passage. Number one, wives prayed and prophesied in Christian gatherings, as we saw in chapter 11, verse 5. 
This was a common practice in all the apostolic churches, it says in verse 33 of chapter 11. The context is crucial, meaning the evaluation of prophecy, as we saw in verse 35. All right, our second point is the law requires the acknowledgement of the distinctive roles of men and women. A reference to Genesis 20, 20 through 24, or Genesis 3, 16, Paul has already cited the former of those in chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. So the acknowledgement of the distinctive roles is important. Number three, the wife is to seek the elucidation of points at home, which could well mean that it was her husband who gave the prophecy. While there's no absolute certainty, this present writer takes the view that wives in this public gathering are not to engage in the public weighing of prophecy, which involved the interrogation of its content. In other words, if Melissa were here and I got up and I started preaching and she said, Whoa, buddy, I think you're wrong on point number two. That'd be pretty weird, wouldn't it? (laughs) That'd be weird for all of us. It'd be awkward. It'd be out of order. Wouldn't be a good thing. Now, my best guess, and I'm being candid here, I don't know, but my best guess is this. I think that he is not talking to all women, but to wives who are with their husbands. I think it is clear that this is certainly the one he's talking to because he says, ask your husband when you get home, right? And if you're single, it's hard to ask your husband when you get home what was meant by something. Uh, I think I told you a few weeks ago, I'm sure you forgot, but the word for women and the word for wife is the same in Greek. So how you translate it depends on the context. So it may not be saying all women. It may talk about just wives here who have their husbands with them in church. Now, I think that has to do, if that's correct, then what that has to do is with order and propriety. Uh, Melissa and I went to a counselor one time to get advice on how to talk to Stephanie about some, some problems she was having with her seizure episodes. And so... She was having some weird side effects that go along with that condition. And Melissa and I went to a counselor to get some wise input on how we should talk to her about it. Well, the counselor would ask us questions. And since Melissa and I were there together, um, Melissa sort of introverted. Instead of answering every question, she would look at me and we'd consider and I would answer. I was kind of the spokesperson. Well, this fascinated this guy so much that he never did help us on what to tell Stephanie. He just wanted to find out what was wrong with Melissa if she didn't, you know, didn't get to breastfeed long enough or you know, whatever it is that psychologists think is wrong with people uh, who, who aren't super outgoing. So he spent the whole time wasting our time trying to find out why she wasn't the spokesperson for us in marriage. That's just weird. Normally, the man is going to be the upfront kind of spokesperson. Um, Another possible explanation, and this is one that I like a good bit, and the more I read it, the more I think it may be true, is that, you know how the, the Corinthians had a saying that Paul dealt with earlier on. They would say, all things are lawful for me, because they said, hey, God's going to forgive me. And so they said, all things are lawful. Well, Paul said, wait a minute, all things may be lawful for you, but not all things are profitable. And so he took their saying... And threw it back in their face and said, let me put a godly spin on this. Some interpreters look at this. And I'm going to go back to the passage for a second. They think 
that this is the saying that the Corinthians had. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And they think that Paul's sarcastic comeback to that is the following verse, which says, Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? It's very possible as well. I wish Paul had been more clear for my sake because I'm dumb and I can't understand exactly what's going on here. But we know that we can't take that one passage out of context and say this means that women shouldn't pray in church because a few chapters ago we were given clear instructions about how they should pray in church. All right, so you do your best to figure that out because that's what I did. (laughs) But that's what I was able to uh, come up with. The next point that I know is right is we should obey apostolic authority. Verse 37 says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Now, if you or anyone else ever thinks that they've gotten a new word from God that corrects or overwrites or disagrees or updates the apostolic teaching that's provided in the word of God, they're wrong. The Bible is our authority. It doesn't need to be updated. doesn't need to be improved. It does not need to get with the times. Where it is countercultural, we need to obey and be countercultural. Now, let me say one more word about the practice of tongues. Um, Again, I I do not believe that it is a current practice, but I know that it is super, super popular. And the growing churches are heavily charismatic in their bend, okay? So, they have it right that they're excited. They have it right that they get to come and meet with their creator. They got all that right. So what we need to do is we need to see and be ashamed that people with less solid doctrine are getting more excited about God than we are. Guys, if that doesn't convict us, I honestly don't know what in the world would convict us. So let's see that we have the attitude that when we come together, we're going to meet with God and we're going to offer worship to God. If that is not exciting enough for you, you need to be saved. Okay, Uh, speaking of which, let me tell you how that works. Folks, we have a problem between us and God. Now, a lot of folks don't know that because everybody says God loves you unconditionally. Well, we saw in in Psalm 5 the other day that that's not true. (laughs) The Bible says that God hates the evildoer. Okay, so there's a problem, guys. If we have sinned and fallen short of what God told us to do, And so then that puts us under God's wrath because we're in rebellion to Him. Now the great news is that God solved that problem for us in the person of Jesus. He sent Jesus to live a perfect life that you couldn't live. And He did. He lived a perfect and righteous and holy life. And then through faith, God will take that perfection and credit that to your account and take your sin and put that on Christ's account, which he already paid for on the cross. So, 
you're in one of two camps today, guys. You are either forgiven, 100% forgiven, but not only forgiven, forgiven and credited with Christ's righteousness, or you are still under the wrath and condemnation of God. I want you to make sure which one you are, and then I want you to fix it if you're in that second category. You can do that today. And how you can do that is you can come up here and we can talk and I can make sure that you understand the gospel. Guys, recently, um, Alice came to faith and she is going to, she's in the process of learning what we got to teach her and eventually going to be baptized. What kind of church do you want her to grow up in? Do you want her to grow up in a cold, dispassionate, dead church? Or do you want her to grow up in one where we actually believe in prayer? We get together and we beg God to bring a revival here. We get excited about the Lord and we start inviting people in. She deserves that kind of church. More importantly, much more importantly, although we love Alice, Jesus deserves that kind of representation. So let me invite you again, Wednesday, 1 o'clock, come together with us. Now, we're not going to think badly of you if you've got a doctor's appointment or you've got to work. But if you don't, come and join us and pray that the Lord will do something here.